Ukraine was already at war with Russia since 2014. But you have the sense that it was not, you know, war as we imagine it, at least in Europe, as a 20th century war. It was rather a sort of state, what I call a state of unpeace. It was no longer peace, but it was not yet full-fledged warfare. Or to say it in, in, in another way, it was too cold to be called a war, but already too hot to be called a peace. And in, in this interregnum, so to speak, I think you know that gave me the, the last push to say, like, right, I need to write this book. And I thought that I, we had a little bit more time than that. But unfortunately, Ukraine is definitely in a state of war officially now with Russia. But I, I think that Europe as a whole is already, maybe not at war, but it's already at unpeace. It's, it's not yet war, but it's no longer peace. Hello, and welcome to Think Atlantic, a series by IRI's Transatlantic Strategy Division, in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. My name is Dan Twining. I'm the president of IRI, and I'm taking over as your host for this episode, because this time I'm very pleased to announce that our guest is none other than your usual host, Thibaut Muzerg. And the reason for this is that Thibaut has just published a couple days ago a new book called War in Europe, From Impossible War to Improbable Peace. This is what we are going to be discussing today in this timely episode. Apart from hosting Think Atlantic for three seasons now, Thibaut is also our Europe and Euromed Program Director at IRI. He has 20 years of experience working in European politics, including 11 at IRI. He is also a distinguished author, most recently, of the book War in Europe, published by Routledge. So, Thibaut, it's really super to have you on board as our guest today, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan, and uh, I may add, thank you as well for being a co-author, so to speak, of this book, because you wrote the foreword, and I think you put in, in words the essence of the book in a way that I could never dreamed about doing. So, thank you very much for being a stakeholder as well in this book. Thank you. Well, I'm definitely a stakeholder, but Thibaut, it's a pleasure to write a foreword because it involves reading your wonderful book and then simply distilling a few of the key points up front. And so... Uh, uh, you did all the work, including uh, all the intellectual work, as well as the hard work, but thank you. So I'm very excited to be kicking this off with you today. And Thibaut, we're now talking in the context, of course, of an actual war in Europe, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But you started working on this book actually some years ago. So why was it that you saw war coming before, frankly, nearly anyone else in Europe did? So thanks, Dan. Uh, what I just did was to look around what was happening and, and what was happening in Europe, and not only you know in Europe as a continent, but in Europe, the European Union. It was just me taking note of the fact that there was a, a degradation of the security environment inside and outside Europe. It has been going on for some years now. I think 2008 was really the year that changed a lot of things. And 2008, by the way, is when war came back into Europe because there was an invasion of a European country, which is Georgia, by Russia. And I think ever since that date, the security situation in Europe, the internal situation in, inside the European Union and in the neighborhood of the European Union has gone worse by the year to the extent that now we have war in Ukraine. If I, if, if I may add something, Dan, because this is something that I, I would like to point out, I actually made this thinking that what if we go until war in Europe, in the heart of Europe? But the fact is, I started writing this book in the summer of 2019. Uh, and that was in Izium, uh, which unfortunately is, is very famous now because this is the front line in the war uh, of aggression that Russia is uh, is waging in Ukraine. And you could already see the future there. You know, if you were standing in eastern Ukraine in 2019, you could see 
you know, if you went a little bit, Izium is on the on the border between the the oblast of Kharkiv and the Donbas and the, the oblast of uh, of Donetsk. So whenever you got there by train, if you went a little bit further, you started to see the military there. You started to see people in uniform and trenches and that kind of stuff. So you you had that feeling that this part of Ukraine, Ukraine was already at war with Russia, although you know Russia denied it, but Ukraine was already at war with Russia since 2014. But you had the sense that it was not you know war as we imagine it at least in Europe, as a 20th century war. It was rather a sort of state, what I call a state of unpeace. It was no longer peace, but it was not yet full-fledged warfare. Or to say it in, in, in another way, it was too cold to be called a war, but already too hot to be called a peace. And in, in this interregnum, so to speak, I think you know that gave me the, the last push to say, like, right, I need to write this book. And I thought that I, we had a little bit more time than that. But unfortunately, Ukraine is definitely in a state of war officially now with Russia. But I, I think that Europe as a whole is already maybe not at war, but it's already at unpeace. It's it's not yet war, but it's no longer peace. Yeah, that's well put, Thibaut. And you were very perceptive there in eastern Ukraine, seeing the future coming at the European uh, continent. So it's very interesting because, of course, Europe wasn't entirely at peace. Of course, after 1945, the Soviet army occupied very brutally half of Europe. But even after 1989 and the collapse of the Soviet empire from 1991, there were various conflicts. Of course, the Balkan conflicts were quite grim and gruesome and introduced us to things like mass graves in Europe, something we hadn't seen in 40 years, 50 years, as we saw in the 90s. Uh, You mentioned the Russian invasion of Georgia, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine several years later in 2014 before the current one. You know, I wonder, did European politicians convince themselves, at least Western European politicians, that in fact they had produced an era of perpetual peace, that they had essentially disarmed themselves uh, and the miracle of European integration and all of these things, frankly, blinded or obscured the forces of history, including what we're seeing play out today in terms of predatory authority. In other words, did European politicians delude themselves into believing that they were living in an era of permanent peace? Yes, I think to a certain extent it's definitely the case. And, and by the way, not only Western Europeans, I think governments in, in Central Europe also had difficulties to see the danger coming. Some countries, it was more Russia that they didn't see coming. Other countries, it's more China that is a problem. But yes, I think that there has been a sort of disillusion. And, and that disillusion comes from a misunderstanding. There is this idea, and this is really a, a totem in Brussels, because from a Brussels perspective, the idea that the EU is a project of peace, and that this is true. The EU, the European Union, the European project, the European communities at the time, was conceived as a project of peace. And it is true that over 75 years, it has produced peace. And this is what has made, you know, the famous mantra that you hear in the Brussels bubble, Europe is peace. Also, because in continental Europe, we have a tendency to make Europe and the European Union as one and the same thing, a bit like in America, you have America and the United States are used uh, interchangeably. But the thing is that this peace that has been defining Europe for the past couple of decades is actually something exceptional. It is the result of a very specific set of circumstances that came up after 1945. If you take Europe literally, 
it is completely false to say that Europe is peace. Rather, the reality is that Europe is war. Since ever since the beginning of time, because Europe, for geographical reasons, for historical reasons, for any reasons that you may think of, Europe as a continent has been defined by war. And I will go even further. The fact that Europe has dominated, for better or for worse, the world in between the 16th and the, and the 19th century is due to the fact that Europe was at war all the time. There is this wonderful book by uh, Jared Diamond guns, germs, and steel that explains why, you know, Spain and, and, and Europe came to, to take the lead over the world. And, and it is true that germs played a, a really big part in the conquest of the Americas. But still, the fact that we made war to each other, we Europeans made war to each other for so much time, meant that we came at an advantage to the other peoples when it came to warfare. And that has allowed uh, small European countries to become gigantic empires and to take over the world. And it, it really came, there was a sort of romance between Europe and Mars until basically 1914. And in this long European war that was the continuum between 1914 and 1945, there was a, the, we came to such an orgy of destruction that we ended up with a continent divided in ruins because of war. And this is where something, a miracle happened, that the convergence of two things. First of all, the United States of America came in and basically, because it had to stay this time in 1945, it had to stay in Europe in order to protect Western Europe from the Soviet threat. It kind of, you know, built the security architecture that could lead to peace in Western Europe. And then there was this other miracle, which was the idea from the majority of European decision makers at the time that we could not go on like that and that we needed to get some sort of community of Europeans in order to avoid war in the future. And this has then expanded after 1989, this idea uh, of a Europe whole, free, and at peace, which is the, the, the idea of George H.W. Bush, but also the idea of many Europeans, you know, became more concrete with the extension of the European Union to the south uh, islands of, of Cyprus and Malta, and also uh, to the east of Europe. We completely forgot that there was a set of specific factors, which are the United States and NATO on the one hand, and the European project on the other hand, that made war in Europe almost impossible. And because we forgot about that because we forgot about the fact that peace does not preserve itself on its own. We have faced over the past 10, 15 years a degradation of our security environment, which is such that today we've come from basically an impossible war to a state of improbable peace. Very well put. Thank you. Thibaut, I'm glad you mentioned NATO, including the historical perspective on the fact that NATO came into being following the Second World War, partly due to an American effort to protect Europe from the Soviet empire, but also partly due to uh, European leadership and wanting to tie America into the continent. There is a Russian propaganda narrative that somehow NATO enlargement threatened Russia, <laughs> that somehow Ukraine was about to join NATO, none of which is true, and that somehow NATO enlargement and the existence of the NATO alliance has destabilized post-Cold War Europe. But looking at what's happening right now, I think you can make exactly the other argument, can't you? That Russia is preying on countries that did not become admitted to NATO. In other words, the Baltic states are secure. Poland, etc., are secure. The countries that are not secure are Ukraine and Georgia, both of which Vladimir Putin has invaded over the last 15 years. And perhaps Moldova is next, which also is not part of NATO. So how do you see the role of NATO in sustaining peace in Europe? 
Well, I think you're absolutely right, Dan. And Russia has, has understood very clearly from the past 20 years or 30 years that NATO is off target for uh, conventional warfare. But basically, they came to the conclusion that they could do whatever they wanted in countries that did not belong to NATO, which is why, by the way, Montenegro was a country in which they desperately wanted to act before they joined. And you may remember that there was an attempt at a coup d'etat, which we still don't know who initiated it, although the FSB was clearly involved. But going back to, to your question, I think if this war in Ukraine was about NATO, right? if, if Putin was right, if this war was really about NATO, then surely Vladimir Putin would have understood that waging war in Ukraine would lead Finland and Sweden into NATO's arms, which is exactly what it has done. And right now, it's still not official, but I'm pretty certain that the debate about NATO in Finland and Sweden, two countries that have been neutral, as far as Sweden is concerned, since Napoleonic Wars, you know, if, if it was really about NATO, Vladimir Putin would have thought about that, and he would have made sure that, you know, there would be no invasion so that Finland and Sweden would not join NATO. This war is definitely not about NATO. But here we need to do our, our mea culpa, Dan, I think. One of the mistakes... Uh, that the West did, because there was there were indeed some mistakes about NATO, is that we suggested that Ukraine, Georgia, could possibly join NATO. And then we didn't follow that up with a real perspective for, for membership. And for me, that was the real mistake. The moment we opened the possibility, the idea that Ukraine and Georgia could join NATO, we should have opened a fast track access to NATO. Because by doing that, and we see that in the in, in the Baltic states, by doing that, then would, we would have uh, uh, sanctuarized Ukraine and Georgia, and there would not have been the war in Georgia. There would not have been uh, uh, the war in Ukraine, and thousands of lives uh, of European lives would have been saved. The other thing that I wanted to say, Dan, and uh, I'll leave it there, is that this NATO guarantee functions only as long as the U.S. guarantees are strong, because at the end of the day, the main guarantor of the U.S. and the main guarantor of the of the Pax Europea is the United States. I know that you know some people in Brussels will disagree. I understand that because it is true that the Pax Europea is also a, an economic piece, legal piece, right? That with a, a set of rules, a set of values, etc. But you know, we tend to think about the idea that you know it's all about the invisible hand. But the invisible hand, the economic prosperity, the legal framework, and all that, the invisible hand is only possible if there is an invisible fist that is here to guarantee that there is going to be security. And we're seeing that uh, right now. So if there is no American support, if there is no American security guarantee, there is no uh, NATO guarantee. And then there is the opening of a perspective for war to get back in the European Union. Very well put. I entirely agree with you, by the way, on Georgia and Ukraine, that NATO made vague signals about an open door for Georgia and Ukraine in 2008, but in fact did not offer any kind of plan for NATO to work closely with Ukraine and Georgia to get them ready for NATO membership. And guess what happened after we essentially closed the door? to uh, an actual plan for Ukraine and Georgia's NATO membership. Uh, literally within weeks, uh, Russia invaded Georgia, 
right? And then six years later, Russia invaded Ukraine. So uh, yes, uh, I think we need to be more serious about the opportunity of NATO. Uh, I will say it's rather ironic historically that Vladimir Putin claims to have invaded Ukraine in part to prevent it joining NATO. And one outcome of his invasion is the uh, very imminent prospect of both Finland and Sweden joining NATO, which I think is not quite what uh, he, the Kremlin had in mind. So Tebow, it's very easy and we could keep going talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the danger that it could continue to, to take Moldova or to push into the Baltic states if the Ukrainian resistance breaks. But it's also very easy to make linear projections and history tends not to work that way. There's a completely different set of categories of danger in Europe that you outline quite interestingly in your book. Could you talk about a few other scenarios around how conflict could return to Europe beyond the current conflagration in Ukraine? Sure. So, I mean, obviously, you know, our attention right now is put on Russia, and rightly so, because I think it is the main threat in Europe for Europe's security. It has been already for some time, and unfortunately, not enough people wanted to see that. And I think still not enough people uh, see that, uh, whether they sit uh, in Budapest, in Berlin, or even in some circles in Paris, or, or for that matter, in Washington. But this is not the only threat. I think there are many external threats. And I think, you know, here we need to understand the extent to which the, the, the security situation has degraded. When we talked about war in the neighborhood, let's say, of Europe in the 2000s, people could have in mind Iraq, Sudan, Afghanistan. In the 2010s, we came to think about war in Libya, in Syria, in Georgia and Ukraine, so much, much closer inside Europe and much, much closer from the European Union. And now, when we talk about war in the 2020s, well, there is obviously Ukraine, and, and it's not only the Donbass, as we saw, and it's also places like the Mediterranean, in which the, the tensions are starting to rise. I mean, let's remember that Greece and Turkey, which are two NATO members, almost went at war with each other in the summer of 2020, and it didn't. it actually came very close to a major... Uh, incident between France and Turkey in the Eastern Med of the coast of Libya in the summer of 2020. So we should we should remember that because there, you know there is not only Russia, there is obviously China, uh, which is trying to make inroads. And right now it's more it's not military, it's more economic, and it's more a question of influence. But by doing these works of influence, by dividing the Europeans between themselves on the position to adopt vis-a-vis -vis China, uh, China is dividing the continent. And it's not a division like in the Cold War. It, it's really a, a division more like the Reformation in Europe in the, in, in the 1500s, in which you will have some states that, would, that could become pro-Chinese, others that would stay pro-European, for example. And here we have a real danger of confrontation. But we also have issues with migration coming from Sub-Saharan Africa and Middle East. Uh, and obviously, you know, the Gulf states, uh, Turkey and other states, which are not our necessarily our enemies, have an ambivalent reaction to the West, an ambivalent vision about the West. If you think about Turkey, they do not see themselves as fully part of the West. They see themselves as an in-between, and they're going to go with the West when it goes with their interests, but they will confront the West, or they will confront some European countries, some European powers, uh, if they feel that it is in their interest to do so. So, you know, all these threats, these issues, they're, they're not always as clear-cut as Russia. And then, of course, we have internal problems inside Europe, inside the EU, problems between states, but there is certainly a problem with Germany right now, which... Uh, you know, when I started writing about it, it was not so obvious to a lot of people. But I think with what we're seeing on the on the arms sales to Ukraine, for example, it is obvious there is such a problem, uh, a problem of tensions between 
center and periphery, but also a problem of identity. And I'm just going to mention two examples. One is Catalonia. Let's remember that in 2017, the temperature rose quite substantially in Catalonia over the idea of a Catalan secession, which Moscow and Beijing were looking with a lot of interest. Obviously, the question of Islam as seen from Paris or from Brussels. And then this confrontation between illiberalism and liberal democracy and and this idea that this could be linked with foreign powers and you, you could end up with a sort of oceanist Europe that would be looking at the transatlantic relationship and at uh, liberal democracy as not only the present and the past of Europe, but also its future. And others who could think that, well, you know, actually liberal democracy doesn't work that well. And therefore, we need to look at other options. And those other options are in Moscow, Beijing, they're in other places. And and you could see that this confrontation over the essence of what Europe is could very well lead in the longer term uh, to to confrontation that could lead to war, basically. So in a nutshell, these are the, the main things that I see as threats over Europe today. Yes, so that's very interesting. I'd love to take that in several directions, but I should probably just move on in the interest of time because this is your show, uh, not mine. Well, you've taken over it. (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to be in control for a few more minutes anyway, Thibaut. Okay, so let me ask you about sort of some solutions, what we need to do here. What can Europeans do to render themselves fit to compete geopolitically in this new era of warfare and danger in Europe? What do Europeans need to do? And then what do we need to do from the transatlantic perspective? Because, you know, we've seen the essential and critical and instrumental role that NATO has played in uh, the face of the invasion. So a question about how Europeans need to get themselves organized for this new era, and then a question about the future of transatlanticism. What are your recommendations? So my first recommendation is that I, I try not not go into technical stuff because that's not what should be done in a book. It's more stuff that you you want to have for articles. But I think from the Europeans' perspective, the first thing, really the first and foremost thing that needs to be done, is to learn to look at war straight in the eye. Since ever since 1945. We have turned our backs, and that's a good thing, on war, but we also have completely abandoned the idea that sometimes, you know, we need war or war is is a necessary threat in order to gain peace. There is this uh, famous Latin saying, which is civis pacem parabellum, uh, which means, you know, if you want peace, prepare for war. And I think we we, we completely forgot about that. So so this is the first thing. And, and we need to understand that the world that has grown around Europe has become much more dangerous and that the war... The, the way war is waged now is completely different from the image that we have of 1939, 1945, even though we are looking scenes that are reminiscent of this period right now in Ukraine. War today can be high intensity, but it can also be a low-cost affair. And I think we've seen with the, the use of drones in Ukraine, but also in places like Nagorno-Karabakh, that drones are completely changing the battlefield in, in a way that, that we would not have imagined uh, a few years ago. Uh, and, and, and this is, you know, low-cost warfare is not led in the same way as uh, high-intensity warfare. So we need to adapt to this idea, to these threats. We also need to adapt to the idea that wars are also waged on, on several fronts, economically, uh, in, with using cyber capacities, and of course, uh, on the information warfare. And we started to understand that after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think we did the right thing by banning Sputnik and, and, and Russia Today, which are just outlets of disinformation from Russia. But we need to go much further. The, the second thing is that 
Europeans need to rearm. This idea that we are reaping the, the dividends of peace, uh, yes, that was possible in the 90s. Maybe it was still possible a little bit in the, in the 2010s, but nowadays this is no longer possible. So Europeans need to rearm. They need to rearm quickly. I think they need definitely to go uh, to the 2% goal of, of GDP spent on defense that they agreed on with the United States and Canada during the NATO, uh, the various NATO summits and which some countries still have not gone to. And they need to think about a European defense, a European defense that would be autonomous, but inside NATO. You know, I remember we, we did a, an event in Rome a few months ago uh, with the Minister of Defense, Lorenzo Guerini, and he said something that I found really good. Yes, we are seeking an, an European strategic autonomy, but this autonomy needs to be an autonomy for doing something and not an autonomy from uh, whoever. So, and I think this is what we, we, we need to think. NATO is a, is a wonderful tool, is an amazing tool to do that because, you know, this is already putting together European forces to train and work on their defense with the American military and with the, the Canadian military. Now, we need to make sure that Europeans are up to the task, that they build a sort of pillar, a defense pillar inside NATO in order to, uh, to be able to take matters into their own hands if necessary. And I think it's also in the in the interest of America because uh, that means that you know if America doesn't spend that much on European defense then that means that it can uh, redeploy in the defense of other allies such as Taiwan such as Japan uh, such as uh, the Philippines for example who have to deal uh, with uh, another bully uh, on the other side of the Eurasian uh, uh, continent and then from a strictly European perspective and but that's my own uh, point of view I would say we need to talk about the idea of a federal Europe not a federal Europe in the sense like a huge Leviathan that would be in Brussels and that would be in charge of everything that's not what federation or at least I don't think that's what the founding fathers in, in the US or the founding fathers in Europe had in mind but we need to think about federation and about the the, the distribution of competences between Brussels and the and, and the member states. The European Union will never be the United States of America. We're a multinational ensemble. We're a civilizational en ensemble. And in this sense, we look more like India than, uh, uh, than the United States, but we also look more like Switzerland, or we look more like what Austria uh, could have been after the, the, the First World War if uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had been given a chance to, to develop as, as a federation, as uh, was the plan before the First World War. So I think those are the three directions in which Europe should look in the, in, in the future. Yeah, that's very well put. So I might just add from an American perspective in terms of the way ahead and how this tectonic shock has impacted uh, the transatlantic alliance. Obviously, we want to sustain NATO unity. There were many questions over the past years about is NATO still relevant? Is NATO still needed? And the clear answer uh, is yes. Uh, and after reading your book, it's even more clear. Of course, we want to help Europe wean itself of Russian energy supply, that Russia uses energy as a weapon. We have seen that. And so perhaps that's one positive uh, outcome of this war. We want Putin to not succeed, to be defeated in his conquest of Ukraine in ways that go back to something you said earlier, that delegitimize his governance model, which as you suggested, is a temptation for several leaders in Europe. And we need to show that that form of governance drives a country into the ground, including by making very bad strategic decisions like invading a neighbor. And then, Thibault, I really appreciate your bringing in Asia, because I think, you know, you've also been very eloquent in arguing we really need to position and unify the West for a new era 
of competition with not only Russia, but more fundamentally China, and that the free and open world that the US and European allies built is under enormous pressure, not only from Russian military invasion, but from Chinese coercion and co-optation and the Chinese desire to essentially end the free and open world and replace it with something much more authoritarian and to do that in league with Russia. So we have a lot of work ahead. Uh, so Thibaut, um, we're coming to the end of the show. We could keep this going, but this part is particularly fun. We're going to move very fast to our Q&A lightning round. So are you ready for a taste of your own medicine? Uh, I, will, I will go for it, Dan. Thank you. Yes. Okay, fine. Question one. Excluding Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what conflict in Europe do you see as most likely to escalate? Probably the Eastern Med or the Balkans. Right. Okay. Question two. What is your top recommendation to improve the prospects for peace in Europe? Federalization and a European defense built with NATO. Question three, does Brexit make everything that you propose more complicated or in fact, uh, do NATO and other structures make possible enhanced collaboration for Europe, not only with the United States, but also obviously with Great Britain? It, it is definitely more complicated, but we can manage it if everybody keeps their heads cool. Okay. Question four, uh, will Germany stop importing Russian oil and gas and when? I, I hope so, uh, as soon as possible. Realistically, I think they will stop getting Russian altogether Russian gas within three or four years. Very good. Okay. Last question, Thibaut, what will your next project be about? Ooh, um, I think, you know, IRI is keeping me very, very busy. And uh, we've, got, uh, we've got the new interest in, in the Mediterranean, which is a fascinating region and also a dangerous one. And I would say probably one of the frontline regions in the, the fight that is coming between democracies and, uh, uh, and dictatorships. So uh, I think the work is going to continue to focus on Europe, but also uh, go more and more towards the, the Mediterranean. Very interesting. It's also a lovely place to spend time, but you're right about its kind of geopolitical axis quality. So that's very interesting. Okay, Thibaut, thank you. We'll leave it there. Really enjoyed our discussion. Uh, hope you enjoyed being on the other side of the mic. This has been a lot of fun for me. Thibaut's new book, War in Europe, From Impossible War to Improbable Peace, is out now, available in all good stores, online and offline. It was published by Routledge, so do go out and get your copy now. Uh, as you know, Thibaut is also on Twitter at tmuzerg, and you should definitely follow our accounts at Think Atlantic and, of course, at IRI Global. We also have a website that is new that we completely revamped, so please do check it out, www.iri.org. This is the end of this episode of Think Atlantic, the podcast that provides you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. Many thanks to Brianna Kerr and Roma Le Quignou for producing this series. We will be back in two weeks with a brand new episode and Thibaut, thankfully, will be back in charge so that nobody takes this podcast rogue. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show and of course, share it with your friends and colleagues. We'd love to continue to build out the listening audience here. So thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you, Thibaut and the team and talk to you soon.